Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. This episode is the second part of a two-part series on the article from the Gospel Coalition titled, How Romans 8 Made Me a Calvinist. Now, if we recall from the first part of this two-part series, we looked at the arguments that the author of the article made for how Romans 8, 28-30 led him away from an Arminian view into a Calvinistic view. I spent quite a bit of time looking at his arguments and, and looking at the false dichotomy that was really prevalent in his thinking, in that if you're not an Arminianist, then you must be a Calvinist, or if you're not a Calvinist, then you must be Arminianist. And I actually have a video where I talked to and interviewed Dr. Fred Shea of Grace School of Theology on the YouTube channel ministry that really talks about this false dichotomy. Is it really either or? Is it Arminian or Calvin? And I will submit to you that it is something other than those two. Regarding Arminianism, like I mentioned in the first part of the two-part series, I can understand how the author simply chalked up his ignorance on the eternal security where the guarantee portion of the passage to the finite mind attempted to understand an infinite God. I mean, after all, how many of us cannot fully understand the Trinity? Or how many of us don't exactly understand how the process of regeneration works through the Holy Spirit? Or what about other workings in our life of, by, and through God? You see, that being the case, was his ignorance of the contradiction of his Arminian view the right path to follow in his particular case? For the sake of remembrance, let's review the conflict that he had mentioned. You see, in the first first part of this series, I, I had uh, spoken about the author explaining, as an Arminian, he could understand verse 29 from the Arminius viewpoint of salvation based upon God's foreknowledge of who would respond to the gospel. But the problems he had were verses 28 and verse 30, which spoke contrary to Arminianism, which seemed to point that God ensures the person who responds to the gospel is assured and guaranteed of their salvation. And if you know anything about Arminianism, they teach that you can, in fact, lose your salvation. And so verses 28 and verse 30 of Romans chapter 8 seem to speak against that Arminian theology. So in verse 29, when God says, whom he did foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, to the Arminian who rejects the teaching of the sovereign election to salvation as the Calvinists read here, it's clear that God's predestination was based upon God's foreknowledge of the person receiving the salvation. And that didn't rattle his Arminian cage, but verses 28 and 30 did, which say, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. In whom he called, them he also justified. In whom he justified, them he also glorified. You see, to an Arminian who teaches that one may lose their salvation or eternal life, these verses couldn't be reconciled by him. Therefore, in order to hold on to his Arminian view, he claimed the unknowable doctrines of God with these verses so that he can reconcile them in his mind theologically and maintain his eisegetical view of Arminianism. But in the article, he goes on to say how a John Piper message led him to believe that Arminianism was the wrong view and that a Calvinist understanding of Romans 8 made much more sense into the eternal security or the guarantee of final salvation in Romans chapter 8. 
You see, the Calvinist reads the passage as saying, God experientially knows the individual, not in the sense of God foreknowing who would receive the gospel message, but rather that God experientially knew the person because he chose the person in eternity past to receive the gospel message. Therefore, since it was God that elected one to salvation based upon his experiential relationship with him before the world began, that led to his election unto salvation, the author then sees how eternal security, or guarantee as he calls it, is possible and visible in Romans 8, 28, and 30, and to the author the explanation from Piper made more sense to him that this explanation led him to leave the Arminian theological view and enter into the theological view that is Calvinism. But today I submit to you that Piper in the traditional Calvinist reform view of this passage is highly egregious. Understanding of what Paul is trying to get at here in this passage is what we're trying to figure out. What does Romans 8, 28 through 30 actually mean? And what does it mean just from exegesis? Now we're going to take off any type of Calvinist or Arminius glasses, presuppositions, and biases, and just see an exegete. What does God's word actually say? First, you have to realize and understand the surrounding context. Remember the 2020 rule. Whenever you're trying to understand a verse, you want to read 20 verses for or 20 verses after. Now, that's not necessarily exact, but it gives a general guideline to help you understand the surrounding context to understand the immediate context. In the case here, we actually have to go back a few chapters to understand Paul's letter to these Roman Christians. You see, we're in Romans chapter 8, but we have to backtrack all the way to chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul reveals that we have peace with God through justification, which he reveals in Romans chapter 4, verse number 5. That the justification comes through faith, not of works, and that it leads to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ onto the believer's behalf. So here in chapter 5, Paul's explaining the process of justification by the blood of Christ, Romans 5, verse 9, and our reconciliation back to God through this relationship, Romans 5, verse 10. Contrasting the sin that came in through Adam from the fall, Paul juxtaposed the life that is received and entered through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous, 519. I believe that the crux of understanding Romans 8, 28, and 30 lies upon Paul's beginning in chapter 6. Chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So chapters 6, 7, and 8 have to do with the suffering and the struggle of living with sin and gaining victory over the carnal flesh over sin. Paul makes a very clear absolute statement in chapter 6, verse number 7, that he that is dead is freed from sin. Namely, illustrating that a Christian, as a Christian, we have died with Christ and been raised new in Christ's resurrection. We have the ability to die to sin and prevent his dominion over us due to the grace of Christ rather than the obligations of the law. You see, explaining the difference between law and grace, Paul goes on to illustrate how as a woman whose husband dies is no longer bound to the law by the law to that man, but the woman can marry again. The same is true to our obligation to the law, namely that our death 
in Christ freed us from the obligation of the law in our resurrection with new life in Christ allowed us to be obligated to another, specifically to grace in Christ. Romans chapter 7, verse number 4. Now, Paul doesn't do this to speak ill of the law of Moses, but rather that through the law it revealed the sin in his life and the necessity for a Savior to reconcile him back to God. See, Paul reveals that even though he has died to the law and risen into the grace of Christ, he admits to his own battling of the flesh and the sins in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24, where he pretty much sums up his revelation, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans chapter 7, verse 24. So the remaining passages have to deal with Paul's question of the deliverance from the body of death or the warring against the fleshly carnal body. First, Paul points out that there's no condemnation to anyone who is in Christ Jesus and walk after the Spirit, 8 verse 1. Trusting Christ as Savior allows the condemnation to pass over us since God sees the righteousness thanks to the imputation of Jesus, Jesus's righteousness through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Admitting the battle that still rages within the Christian, he says that the carnal mind is at enmity with God and that it is death, Romans 8, 6, and 7. But he gives hope of this carnality in that because of the spirit that is in us through the regeneration, that we can live according to the spirit and fight against the carnal mind in actions through the spirit's power. This is one of the many blessings that the Holy Spirit brings to the indwelling of a believer, the ability to overcome sinful actions and sinful behavior. But Paul goes on to talk about other blessings of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. For instance, in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, Paul explains how the Spirit also gives us witness that we are in God's family, that we are the children of God. He does so by, in verse 16, and explaining that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, that though we suffer with Christ, we may be glorified together. So another blessing is that the Spirit allows us to be glorified with Christ, but glorified through the suffering with Christ. It's from this thought that Paul expounds upon, specifically the glory that is awaiting us through suffering. Also seen is that the revelation of being joint heirs with Christ is through the suffering with him. And in that suffering, we may be glorified together with Christ. So while the bulk of this portion of Paul's letter is dealing with the struggles of the carnal flesh, the blessing of joint heirship with Jesus is found through suffering with Jesus. Keeping this immediate thought in mind about the suffering with Christ, Paul in verses 18 through 23 explains how though there are sufferings, though there's trials, though there's moral decay, and again in relation to striving against the flesh, the carnal mind, the persecutions, that there will be a point, praise God, that we will be delivered from these days. Verse 18 clearly expresses that there will be a future time in which we will no longer battle these sinful, carnal desires and vanity. Nor will we have to look over our shoulders for the fear of persecution in that Paul says, this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
You see, this is a future time and glory for our struggling against the flesh and the battles. And he says in verse 21 that we will be delivered from the bondage of corruption or moral decay into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And that we are waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So Paul's bringing to light the revelation of the glorification or the day when every believer will receive a glorified body so as to not ever have to fight or war against sin or carnality, nor will we receive persecutions and sufferings, and that we will be completely and totally free from this bondage and moral corruption. So Paul's two things he has in mind is receiving liberty from the carnal flesh and the sufferings of the godly believer. As explained, nothing from chapter 6 all the way up through Romans 8 verse 28 through 30, is Paul dealing specifically with eternal life, the gospel plan of salvation. But rather, Paul is talking about living a victorious Christian life and fighting against the carnal flesh. Remember, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? It's important that sometimes understand a verse, again, like we said, you must not only go a few verses earlier, but at times a few chapters or more before the verse to get the true context. Remember, the verses and chapters are not inspired. They were added later after the canonization of Scripture. And that's where I believe the Arminian and Calvinists both go wrong in interpreting this passage. A faulty interpretation will lead to a faulty application, leading to a faulty view of God and His Word. Therefore, coming to our text passage, Paul says, Therefore, we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now, the question that everybody wants to know is, what is the all things Paul has in mind here? Is it our sinful desires work together for good? Is it everything in a Christian's life works together for good? Is it everything in life, period, works together for good? Paul just finished comparing people with creation in verses 19 through 23, that the entirety of creation, to include us, groans and is in birth pangs, as mentioned in verse 22. You see, the Greek word for birth pangs is a compound word that comes from the root word Paul uses in Galatians 4.19, Odino. And in Galatians, he says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. That the birth pain. The travailing in birth continues to the formation of Jesus in them. Recall that Paul had just finished explaining the joint heirship of a Christian with Jesus through the suffering and the life back in verse 17. The inheritance isn't because of the sinful action the Christian is taking, but the inheritance is because of the godly life they are living. They are fighting against the sinful actions and the trials and the sufferings and the persecutions that come. The trials, sufferings, striving against the flesh are simply the birth pangs awaiting a future delivery, as Paul mentions in verses 19 and 21. So I believe that the all things refer to just that, the godly fighting through trials, sufferings, persecutions, strivings against the flesh. And it's these all things that work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. So the entire birth pangs of creation and the birth pangs of our struggles work together, cooperate, assist for good for a specific group of people, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. This group of people must be Christians because 
He's been identifying with Christians this entire section, but not just any Christian and not just all Christians. I believe he has faithful Christians in mind, those that are battling the carnal flesh and the sufferings of a godly life. It's these Christians who truly love God. As we see in Jesus' declaration in John chapter 14, verse number 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And it's these Christians who are sharing in the sufferings of Christ in the Christian life. What is the good that it brings out? Well, we find the answer in verse 29, being conformed to the image of of his dear son. This parallels nicely with Paul's letter to Galatians. We mentioned earlier in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, that the birth pangs continue until the formation of Jesus Christ. And this is the good, that a Christian is being made in the likeness of Christ. And I believe that is the crux of verses 29 and 30. Keeping in mind that the good is the conforming us into Christ Through these sufferings of the flesh and persecution, Paul says that these Christians, a specific group, not universally all Christians, but these Christians were foreknown. Don't misunderstand me. Don't misquote me. I completely believe in the full omniscience of God. I'm not Pelagian. I'm not an open theist. But this foreknowledge here was not only that God foreknew who would accept the gospel invitation, but just as he knew who would be able to become a Job or an Elijah or a Jeremiah in this life. God experientially knew those who could be a greater uh, asset, not necessarily a greater asset, but greater conformed to the image of Christ through the sufferings. We see this truth in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou comest out of the womb, I sanctify thee, and I ordain thee to be a prophet among the nations. Jeremiah was foreknown of God to be his prophet, And he was foreknown by God and to undergo some of the struggles he endured in his life for God's glory, as well as his and his sharing in the suffering of Christ. Therefore, these Christians whom God foreknew, he predestined. Nowhere, nowhere does this say they were predestined to eternal salvation or eternal life. That is eisegesis at its finest. And it's reading that into the text. What does God actually say? He predestined that these trials, that through those trials, they would be what? Conformed to the image of his son. Again, the predestination is not a predetermination to who would receive eternal life, but rather the predestination or predetermination, I can't even talk, predetermination is that all those who traveled the roads of suffering would be conformed to Christ. And so they were predestined that they would be conformed to the image of Christ, not to salvation. And these would share in the joint heirship of Christ that Paul references in verse 17. They would be rewarded for their faithful service of a Christian living well. Those group of believers whom God predestined, he called and he led to these choices. Zane Hodges doesn't see this as the universal call of salvation. When Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 32, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, because Paul has in mind here specific Christians, and I tend to agree with him. This calling is to a specific group of faithful Christians in the same way Jeremiah was called in the womb. Sometimes God calls us to share in the sufferings of Jesus in this life, and I believe it's this type of call that Paul has in mind. 
not an unconditional election call to eternal life, as a Calvinist would say. But God promises us it's not in vain, and it is not without purpose, that these which are called are justified in their godly actions, they live godly, and their justification leads to their glorification, namely the receiving of the glory that godly lives of which they are living, leading to the receiving of future rewards in the joint heir with Christ in heaven, which perfectly aligns with Paul's promise of this joint heirship in verse 17, thus dependent upon the faithful suffering with Christ. To close the loop on this, Paul tells the Christians that their suffering should not be seen as the forsaking of God, but rather the ability to share in Jesus' suffering, to be able to be glorified in their suffering, and that these are mere birth pangs of the future deliverance from bondage and moral corruption that the entirety of creation faces. So what does Paul 8, uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30 mean? If you were to ask me, and I believe this aligns with some wonderful exegetes and theologians out there as well, that there is a specific group of Christians that are called to share in the sufferings of Christ, similar to Paul. When Paul was converted, God had told Paul that he's going to have to suffer for his name. And we see the same with Job and Jeremiah and others. And that through, though they suffer, and though they've been called to enter into the suffering, this is making them more like Christ, and they will be blessed in future rewards and joint heirship with Christ upon being declared a good and faithful servant. And finally, in the midst of the sufferings and the trials that God has not left them, but God has called them to share in the precious, precious privilege that he is not absent, but fully vested in them. And no matter what, God loves them and nothing will separate them from his care. You see, nothing in Romans 8, 28 through 30, is there any indication that this is a Calvinistic unconditional election to eternal life by God? Nowhere from chapter 6 onward is there any inclination that there's a predestination to eternal life. Paul finished up the thought of justification by faith alone in chapter 5 and moved on in this letter. And that's why it's crucial to seek not only the immediate context, but the surrounding context to fully understand what God is revealing in Scripture, sometimes having to go back three or four chapters or even more to gain contextual clarity. Many times, we're just going to simply eisegete and place our thoughts into the Bible or into a verse to find a proof text verse, rather than trying to exegete or dig out God's meaning from his word. So for the author of the uh, Gospel Coalition article, I'm sorry, Romans 8 does not lead me and should never have led you into Calvinism, but rather it should reveal the great love that God has for not only Christians, but those who share in the sufferings of Christ faithfully, as well as God's promises for blessings in the future. Well, there you have it. I hope this uh, episode has been a blessing to you. This finishes the two-part series on the article, How Romans 8 Made Me a, a Calvinist. Feel free to go ahead and leave me comments uh, in the comment section below. Let me know how wrong I am or uh, whether God has used this to really remove some veils from your eyes. But as always, I thank you for checking in. Until next time, God bless.